everyone. I am Kale Fleggy, and this is the Made in Gainesville podcast. On this show, you'll hear stories and get insights from business owners and leaders from across the nation that have ties to Gainesville. On this episode, we'll hear from Dr. Gordon Hubble, a retired zoo veterinarian and expert in shark paleontology. Dr. Hubble was attracted to a career as a zoo vet because he thrived in the unpredictable nature of the job. He will share stories of situations where he had to quickly improvise, such as saving the life of a rare snow leopard and racing to capture three escaped hyenas before children began walking to school in the morning. When Dr. Hubble retired from zoo life, he followed his passion for sharks and became a well-known shark expert who has been featured on several TV programs, including Discovery Channel's Shark Week. Dr. Hubble will conclude by giving us advice on how to become a respected expert in something without formal training in that field. Enjoy! So let's start from the beginning. You're a world-renowned shark expert in shark paleontology, but you didn't go to school for this. You're a trained veterinarian. Um, what are some of your favorite experiences working as a vet? Working as a vet in a zoo, uh, I've had some, some really strange experiences. Um, first of all, I got interested in, in zoos because uh, uh, when, I, when I worked in uh, high school, I worked for a part-time uh, zoo veterinarian up in Cleveland. And uh, he uh, would occasionally get a zoo animal brought to him to treat, and uh, that intrigued me, interested me. So after I graduated from college with my veterinary degree, I went to work in Cincinnati for the for a small animal veterinarian who was also the part-time veterinarian for the Cincinnati Zoo. And uh, then I got more experience, and of course then I was really interested in in uh, uh, zoos, working in zoos full-time. Uh, I also got a, a part-time job at the Columbus Zoo as a part-time keeper on weekends while I was going to college at Ohio State. And I'll never forget my first day there. I went to work about 6 o'clock in the morning. It was pitch dark. And uh, the head keeper met me at the gate, and he said, yes, I'd like you to work over in the birdhouse. So I said, fine. So he gave me the keys. He showed me which direction the birdhouse was, and it was pitch dark, so I almost had to feel my way over there. But I unlocked the back door of the birdhouse and opened the door, and a voice shouted out, shut the door, bub. And (laughs) so I thought, well, somebody's sitting in here in the dark. Well, I walked in, turned the lights on. I finally found the light switch, turned the lights on. There was nobody there. And uh, I walked all through the building, looked at all the exhibits, and nobody was there. So I came back into the back area of the birdhouse where I had entered, and there was an African gray parrot sitting there on a perch. And uh, I knew African gray parrots were pretty good talkers, but uh, he muttered a few words and... Anyway, when the full-time keepers came in an hour later at 7 o'clock, I told them what had happened, and they said, well, it was could be it was the African gray parrot that said that. Well, I worked in the birdhouse for two years part-time, and that bird never said those phrases again. But obviously it was the, uh, was the African gray parrot. And it just kind of illustrates the unpredictable nature of working with with wild animals and with zoo animals. Um, I had uh, uh, also with TV shows, I've I've done a number of TV shows, children's shows, uh, I've been on Discovery Channel shows five times, 
and National Geographic a couple times, and it seems like every time is a challenge. It's, it's a new experience. But I remember the first TV show I did back in Cincinnati in 1959. Um, the lady from the... Uh, local educational channel called my boss and asked if he would come down and talk about his experiences working in the zoo and he said no but uh, my associate will be glad to and so he turned to me and looked at me and I said okay fine well he talked about what I should talk about at the, at the show and we decided since he had a closet full of skulls from different animals that had died at the zoo over the years that um, I could take those down there and show them to the kids, show them the different teeth and talk about how um, different animals eat and catch their prey. And it, it sounded bizarre, but uh, it was worth a try. Anyway, the next week I went down to the TV show, entered the studio, and there was a bleacher full of kids, probably about 50 kids, elementary school age kids. And uh, we started in with our program, and I would pull a skull out and show them the teeth and let the kids touch the teeth and the skull, and they all seemed very interested in it. Anyway, the half-hour show went by very fast and uh, was very well received. So the manager of the station came down afterwards, and he said, uh, you know, you did so well on this show. Could you come back next week, do another one? And I said, sure, be glad to. Well, I was feeling pretty puffed up at that time, uh, in those days, there was a program called Zoo Parade uh, with uh, Marlon Perkins, who was the director of the St. Louis Zoo, uh, moderating it. And he talked about zoo animals, and he became pretty, pretty popular and pretty famous. So anyway, we talked about what I would do the next week, and I said, look, uh, the, uh, there's a keeper uh, in charge of the reptiles at the Cincinnati Zoo. He's a good friend. Maybe I'd bring some... Uh, turtles and snakes and crocodiles down and maybe a lizard or two and we'll talk about them well the lady moderator said that's fine that sounds good so i went home and went back to work and i didn't really prepare for the show because reptiles had always been a kind of a hobby of mine and um, i feel with the with the kids there and touching the turtles and the snakes and all it it would take quite a bit of time and so anyway, I went to the station, uh, and on the way I picked up uh, two snakes, a couple turtles, a baby crocodile, and a small lizard, and put them in gunny sacks, tied the top of the sack, and went down to the TV station. Well, I walked into the studio, and there were no kids. <laughs> so I said to the, the lady moderator, I said, where's the kids? And she said, well, we had a mix-up with the buses today, and there won't be any kids down here. So I thought, oh my gosh, this is terrible because I was planning on a lot of the time being taken up with the kids asking questions and being able to touch all the critters. So I told the lady moderator, I said, look, you're going to have to uh, take the place of the kids and ask me the questions and touch all these reptiles. And she said, oh, fine, no problem. Well, the show began, and uh, the first sack I opened up, I hauled out a uh, six-foot boa constrictor. <laughs> The lady moderator let out a scream, and she ran out of the studio. So I was left to do a half-hour show for which I had not prepared, all by myself, no kids or anything. So I went from uh, 
potential television star to a television slop, uh, flop in uh, one week's time. And uh, that kind of discouraged my uh, appearances on television after that. So was this live TV or was it recorded? This was live TV back those days. And it was black and white, of course, back in those days too. Yeah. So how much time were you able to fill? I filled a half hour, but I didn't uh, <laughs> do it very well. Uh, just a little talking now and then. Is this still when you're at the Columbus Zoo? Yeah, at the Columbus Zoo. Uh, so your first well, full-time job was at the Cincinnati Zoo, is that correct? Cincinnati Zoo, yeah. And uh, the fellow I worked for was, of course, a part-time vet at the zoo. So um, when he wasn't available, he frequently went off on trips. So I, I got to do the zoo work, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I enjoyed the work because when I came in in the morning to work, I didn't know what kind of an animal I'd be treating, whether it be an elephant or crocodile or snake. And uh, the um, unpredictability appealed to me, whereas in a small animal practice, it was always dogs and cats and usually uh, skin problems, fecals, uh, vaccinations, and it got pretty routine after a while. But... Um, one day at the Cincinnati Zoo, they they called our uh, animal hospital and said that their new snow leopard was sick. Uh, now the snow leopard back in those days, back in 1961, was a, an extremely rare animal and a very, very valuable animal. So they were very concerned about it. And uh, my boss was not available, so I had to go out there and treat the animal. They said the animal was... Uh, had eaten some rotten meat and was just kind of toxic and uh, couldn't stand up and move around. So that was uh, about 9.15 in the morning. At 9.30, I arrived at the zoo. Fortunately, the zoo was right around the corner from our animal hospital. But this was also the day I was to bring Kate and our, my wife and our newborn son home from the hospital. So I got to the zoo uh drove down the walkway, actually, to the uh, large feline house, entered the building, and there was a snow leopard laying back up against the back bars of the cage, and he couldn't, couldn't move around. So I got all my equipment, went around the back of the cage, and found that uh, there was a room full of people there watching to see what I was going to do. The zoo board, the zoo director... They were all there, uh, wanted to see what I would do with this rare animal. Well, I, I couldn't figure out a whole lot of things to do at that time, but we reached in and grabbed the, the snow leopard's tail and pulled this 150-pound snow leopard over to the bars, and I gave it an injection of antibiotics and steroids, and I thought, well, you know, maybe, uh, maybe I'll give this thing an enema, and we'll get some of that uh, rotten meat or whatever he ate, work through him, and uh, besides some of the fluid will be absorbed through his large intestine, and it uh, helped to detoxify him. So I had brought along a little enema can that we use in small animal practice, but uh, it just wasn't big enough for this uh, big 150-pound cat. And I noticed uh, that they used uh, high-pressure nozzles to clean out the cages that had a very small end on them. So I thought, well, maybe that'll work. So I, uh, I had them rig the nozzle up on the hose, and uh, I greased the end up with 
KY jelly and <laughs> inserted it in the back of this uh, snow leopard, told the uh, uh, keepers to turn the water on real slowly. So everything went well for about a minute, a minute and a half, and all of a sudden there was an explosion of this foul-smelling brown liquid from the back of the cat and just covered me from head to foot. <laughs> this was now a uh, quarter to ten. I had to be at the hospital by ten to pick up Kate and uh, our uh, young baby. And... Um, so the and the, the gallery that was watching got a good laugh out of the whole thing. Anyway, um, I left the directions with the keepers what to do, and I remembered I had a gray plastic raincoat out in the car, and so I thought, well, okay, I, I took off my shirt, washed up as best I could, put this gray plastic raincoat on, and drove over to the hospital on this bright, sunny June day. And... <laughs> Pulled up to the emergency room where I thought I could pick up my wife and uh, baby. And they said, no, it was a hospital policy. I had to go up to the maternity floor to pick them up. So I uh, took the elevator up there and, and uh, picked them up. And Kate asked me what was going on. And I said, well, don't ask. I'll tell you when we get home. So we got home and I explained what had happened. Anyway, there was a good outcome to this whole thing because... I survived, and the snow leopard also survived and lived many years afterwards. <laughs> so you said you enjoyed the unpredictability of working you know, with the large animals, and with that unpredictability, there's a lot of times where you have to improvise. It looks like you had to improvise a few times there. You know, Number one, with the high-pressure hose, and two, with the raincoat. Are there any other situations at the zoo where you had to you know, improvise at the last minute? Well, it seems like almost every every situation was uh, some kind of improvising. Um, back in the mid-1950s, there was a, a device uh, invented called the capture gun. And this was invented by a, a chemist from Georgia by the name of Red Palmer. And the capture gun was nothing more than a Crossman air pistol that had a large bore attached to the top of it, a large bore barrel, and it was big enough to accommodate a uh, capture syringe. And the capture syringe was about the size of, a, I guess, a 5cc syringe, so it was pretty good size. And the, um, the capture syringe or capture dart uh, had a uh, rubber plunger in the middle, and uh, in that rubber plunger there was a little indentation, and you put a powder charge in there, and then over the back of the syringe, you put a tailpiece that had uh, uh, feathers on it. And then uh, you filled the front of the syringe with whatever you're attempting to inject into the animal. And uh, then you put the uh, needle on the front of it. And um, it was an ingenious device, and it uh, it saved a lot of animals' lives. And... I, it probably saved a lot of zookeepers' lives and zoo veterinarians' lives, too. And over the years, it's uh, been improved and uh, now uh, operates with, uh, with a powder charge. Uh, the gun itself does rather than the, uh, just the syringe. But uh, the, the uh, uh, plan of that syringe is that when the 
syringe hits the animal, it stops so suddenly that the powder charge has a hammer in it that flies forward, hits the powder, explodes, and instantly injects whatever's in the syringe into the animal. Uh, we have used that a number of times, not just uh, to give antibiotics, uh, but also to give tranquilizers and anesthetic agents. Uh, when I first went to work at the uh, Crandon Park Zoo down in Miami, we had a gelata baboon, uh, which is a North African species of baboon, has a big red bare-skinned area on his chest, that the female had been acting strangely. We knew she was pregnant, uh, but she was laying on the floor of the cage with her feet up against the uh, side of the cage and pushing. And we could assume that she was probably in labor, but she just couldn't deliver. So I uh, used the capture gun, gave her an anesthetic, and uh, did a cesarean section on her and delivered a baby. And the baby we took home and hand-raised. Uh, the, the, uh, our kids called it uh, Davy Crockett because it looked like it had a, had a raccoon skin cap on. And um, eventually the, the baby grew up and uh, was sent off to another zoo. But that was one area where the capture gun was a big help to us. Another one... Uh, so what would have happened... I mean, are the, were the animal been very aggressive if you tried to approach it without it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's one thing about um, wild animals in zoos is that they do not uh, tame down. And, in fact, we discourage uh, the keepers and anybody to, from ever making pets out of them or trying to tame them down because that's when you get into trouble. But uh, we we had a chimpanzee that had been somebody's pet, and uh, he was 146 pounds. He's a big male, and uh, he was just totally messed up because he had been hand-raised and was a pet, so we knew we couldn't really breed him. In fact, we had tried several times, and he was scared to death of other chimps, and that didn't work. But one day, I was sitting in the office, and I was talking to a big game hunter, strangely enough, and my head keeper walked into the office and he said, hey, Colonel's gotten out. Colonel was the big male chimp. And I, I had to think for a second what he was talking about. And then I realized that the big male chimp was out running loose in the zoo someplace. So I, uh, I told him to keep an eye on him and figure out where he was going. And so I knew when I uh, got ready to capture him, we would know where to locate him. Anyway, at that time, we had another full-time veterinary uh, staff, and he had done all the veterinary work for, oh, uh, over a year. So I hadn't done anything for like that for a while. In fact, I didn't even know exactly where he kept his capture gun and the darts. So I had to search through the animal hospital to find everything and then try and figure out what kind of a drug to give the animal to knock him down. Was the zoo open at this point? Were there visitors in the zoo? Yeah, there were visitors in the zoo. It was in the morning. And uh, so I, I got everything loaded up. I, I put together three darts, figuring I could miss him twice. But I should get him on at least the third try. Well, 
Colonel Lechimp ran over to the front of the zoo to the front entrance, climbed up the seven foot on the seven foot fence, and sat up there looking around the zoo and out over the parking lot. And um, he looked pretty proud of himself, actually. So I, uh, I got in the zoo station wagon with my capture gun and darts, and I drove over to the front of the zoo, keeping the capture gun out of sight because he had been shot before, and he, he knew what it was. If he saw that, he was going to take off and run, and then we would have a time catching him. But he kept staring at me as if, uh, wonder what's going to happen next. And so I finally told the head keeper, I said, go around the parking lot on the other side, but not behind him because I don't want to risk you getting hit by the dart and yell at him and see if he'll look at you. Well, the keeper went out there and he yelled and Colonel snapped his head around, looked at him and I raised the gun and shot him and shot him right in the hip. Thank goodness. And Colonel snapped his head around, looked at me and uh, pulled the dart out and threw it back at me. And uh, <laughs> he sat up there and looked at me as if, my gosh, what could you, how could you do this to me? Anyway, there was a small palm tree right next to the fence. He put his arms around that palm tree and as he became anesthetized, he did a, a spiral uh, drop uh, the palm tree down to the base of it. And uh, we ran over and picked him up and put him in the back of the station wagon. Well, we drove him back over to the exhibit, and in the meantime, our secretary had located our other full-time veterinarian, and he said, what happened? And I said, well, somebody uh, apparently left a lock open on this cage, and he got out. Uh, what did you use on him? And I told him, and he said, well, how much did you use? And I said, uh, you know, five, five cc's, and he says, oh, my gosh. He says, that's not enough. So we turned around. And here was Colonel sitting up in the car, <laughs> looking around. So uh, anyway, we figured that Colonel was still subdued enough that we could manhandle him and get him back in the cage. And we opened the cage door, opened the back of the station wagon, each grabbed an arm, walked him over there and put him up in the cage, closed the door, and uh, let him wake up in there. But fortunately, uh, we got him back without anybody getting hurt. Are there any other experiences with animals getting out, like maybe you know, some more dangerous animals? Yes, uh, we got uh, three spotted hyenas in from uh, uh, a zoo, uh, and uh, we put them in a, an exhibit that had a crushed rock floor to it, and we thought that would hold them all right. Now, these, these animals weighed about 95 pounds apiece, so they were pretty good size, and of course... A hyena can be pretty dangerous. And uh, one night, uh, my wife and I had just gone to bed, and I got a call from our night watchman, and he's, he was huffing and puffing. He says, Doc, he says, the hyenas got out, and they chased me back to the office. <laughs> and so I said, okay, John, just hold tight, and we'll be right there. So we only lived five minutes from the zoo, so I drove out there and uh, went into the animal hospital, and I... Figures three three hyenas, so I loaded up uh, six darts, figuring that uh, I could miss each hyena one time, and um, loaded up with uh, anesthetics. And then I uh, got in the zoo pickup truck and drove around the zoo, and I couldn't find them. 
And uh, then I began to panic because I knew in the morning when the kids were getting ready to go to school and they were out there at the bus stop that the hyenas would probably be up there trying to get food out of them. From them. So I didn't want them attacking the kids and then didn't want them, anybody else getting hurt. So I got out of the pickup truck and I walked around the zoo, um, hoping that they would not come after me. But anyway, I got down to the back of the zoo and came up past the... Uh, lion cage and lo and behold there were the three hyenas sitting in the walkway in front of me and hyenas are an interesting animal they're a very curious animal and um, they're not like a wolf or a coyote or a dingo that would run off these things stayed around and one of them in the pack of three would run up to me stop about five feet from me and bob and weave and give off a little laughing sound like the spot hyena does and then run back to the other two. Well, the one of them then came running up towards me, and when he turned around, I shot him with a gun in the hip, and uh, he went running back to the other two, and they all stayed there in a group, and they were all looking at their buddy, who was starting to get sleepy at this time, trying to figure out how they could help him. So I walked over to them, close to them, and they didn't go away, and I shot the other two of them dart and knocked him out so now we had three anesthetized 95 pound hyenas and didn't know what to do with them so uh, i went over and got my uh, watchman and we went uh, to the lion cage and we locked the lions in the back and uh, carried the hyenas back into the front of the lion cage uh, till morning till we could figure out where to put them uh, and Interesting enough, uh, spotted hyenas are an animal that is almost impossible to determine the sex on. They all look like males, and we thought we had three males. And then one day, by golly, the hyena presented us with a couple babies. And uh, so we took those and hand-raised those. But they are very, very interesting animals and can be very dangerous. And when you say hand-raised, what does that mean? Uh, we developed a formula for them uh, and uh, used a bottle and raised them. And uh, they got them up to the point where they could run around. And they, In fact, <laughs> they had the very annoying habit of when you had them at, at the home that they would hide under furniture and then they'd run out and bite you on the ankle. And, and then a hyena, a baby hyena, has little needle-like teeth and, boy, it hurt. <laughs> so so we you had these animals at home? Yeah, uh, we had them at home, and uh, our veterinarian at the time, Dr. Samsel, took them and hand-raised them, too. <laughs> well, that's amazing. So when did you make the transition from the Cincinnati Zoo to the Miami Zoo? I worked in Cincinnati for two years uh, in the animal hospital and, and, of course, part-time at the zoo. But during that time, I, uh, I kept writing letters to different zoos telling them I was interested in a full-time job. And I got a reply from Miami um, saying that they were going to hire their first full-time veterinarian. So I flew down there, got the interview, and came back. And and we packed up things and moved there from Cincinnati. Was so, Miami Zoo new at this point? You said it was the, no, the first full-time it, veterinarian? It wasn't new. It uh, had been in existence for probably 13 years. But... Uh, it was a small zoo. It was located on Key Biscayne, 
and uh, there was only about 20 acres developed, and we developed another five or six acres before we uh, closed the zoo down, moved to a new zoo. Were you working at the Miami Zoo when Hurricane Andrew hit? I had retired the year before, thank goodness. We had two other hurricanes come through the zoo back in 1964 and 1965, Hurricane Cleo and Hurricane Betsy, and uh, they did extensive damage in the zoo. Uh, The first one, uh, Cleo, knocked a lot of trees down, didn't uh, affect any of the animals, but the second one, Betsy, came in on a high tide and flooded the zoo, and we lost a couple hundred animals, mostly reptiles, uh, mainly because we had put them in bags and put them on the floor of the reptile house, and the the water came up and flooded it and drowned them. Uh, what is what are the preparations that you have to do for a hurricane? Well, at the, the old zoo, it was uh, putting boards up in front of the uh, reptile exhibits to make sure that the uh, coconut didn't fly across and break the glass in front of the exhibit. And we locked all the animals in their night houses, uh, those that had night houses. Uh, strangely enough, uh, we had some birds, um, some frigate birds in the zoo, birds that had been injured and brought into us and we couldn't let go because they couldn't fly. But the frigate birds have uh, got a fair wingspan, but uh, it's only a couple pounds in weight, and uh, they were still sitting on the rocks when we came back after the hurricane had passed. So they had lived through 140-mile-an-hour winds, and they got through them just by sitting in the right direction and uh, riding with the wind. Wow. So you've worked at multiple different zoos. Uh, You obviously, you know, enjoy the unpredictability of working with the big animals. What are some of the most rewarding experiences that you had? In zoos, the most re- rewarding experience you can have, of course, is, is when an animal's born. It's uh, an indication that you've, you've provided the right uh, circumstances for those animals to not only live but also reproduce in captivity. Uh, sometimes you have uh, uh, animals that have difficulty giving birth, and we had to do cesarean sections on some animals. Um, one of the, the interesting births we had was that of an aardvark. Uh, an aardvark is an interesting animal. They weigh about 120 pounds, and a big round body, and a long snout with a kind of a pig-like end on the snout, and huge claws on their front and back feet. And they use these claws to dig up uh, termite mounds in Africa. They're found normally south of the Sahara in, in Africa. And uh, they're very well adept at uh, digging up these mounds and and getting termites. And uh, we had a pair in captivity, and they bred, and we found a baby in the exhibit one day. There had had never been a successful birth of an aardvark in captivity before. So we took the baby, and uh, our vet at the time, who was uh, Dr. Samsel, he devised a diet to give it, and he hand-raised it at home. And we had a naming contest for it, and the winner was Artie, Artie the Aardvark. And uh, she became very famous. In fact, she grew up, and, and we had uh, 16 Aardvark births after that. So we were very well established at that time as a, an important zoo, even though we were small.
So you'd been working at the zoo for a number of years. When did you retire from working with big animals at the zoo? And you began a you know second life as a big-time shark researcher. How did you make that transition? Well, uh, while I was working at the zoo, I, of course, did some of the work at the Miami Sea Aquarium, which was down the street from us, and got involved with sharks there. But I also liked to fish for sharks, uh, not only because they were big big fish and they give a good fight, but we ate them and uh, saved jaws and vertebrae for study, took all the measurements, so uh, we did some scientific study with them too. How do you eat shark? I don't think I've ever had well-prepared shark before. (laughs) It's a challenge. To begin with, if you get a shark, catch a shark that you want to eat, it's imperative that you keep it fresh, and I would recommend cutting the head off and cut and, and uh, eviscerating it and putting it right on ice to keep the uh, meat from spoiling. If you leave it out on the deck of a uh, boat and the sun bakes it for a while, it's no good to eat. So, but uh, young, small black tips, small lemon sharks, very good to eat. Uh, meat is very firm, no bones. <laughs> okay, so you had retired in 1991, and tell me again how you transition into becoming a shark expert? Well, before that, uh, well, probably 20 years before that, I had gotten into shark fishing and also collecting fossil shark teeth. And um, I enjoyed it. Uh, I take one weekend a month and travel from Miami up to central Florida to the Bartow area, the phosphate mining area, and um, spend uh, all day Saturday and half a day Sunday collecting Uh, fossil shark teeth and then drive back to Miami. So I amassed quite a collection and then to help me identify these teeth I started collecting shark jaws uh, from researchers, uh, from commercial fishermen, uh, anyone that I could get jaws from that I could get data on them and knew what species they were. And uh, I got this big collection and became well known for it. And so researchers began to come to Miami to see the collection, to ask me about different specimens. And I also started supplying uh, uh, aquariums, uh, researchers, zoos uh, with shark jaws for exhibit. And so I started a business of preparing shark jaws for museum exhibits. And uh, I got enough income from that to support my other my silly hobby of collecting shark teeth and shark jaws so just to give a, a our listeners a sense of you know how big of a researcher you are in you know sharks like what kind of people you know contacted you to get information like how well respected are you in the shark community that's a good question, and I don't know, but I would hope that uh, I have some respect in there. But I've gotten requests for specimens and also requests for students and researchers to come down and study my specimens. And I work closely now with the Florida Museum of Natural History with their graduate students and postdoctorate uh, uh, candidates. And... Uh, We've, you know, we've worked together on a number of research papers, and uh, hopefully they've been of value. You know, the the problem with shark research, especially fossil shark research, I should say, is that all you got to work with are teeth. Um, the rest of the shark just does not preserve well. 
you rarely get any cartilage preserved and for the most part you don't know what these sharks look like unless you go way back maybe a couple hundred million years ago when you have a whole uh, impressions of sharks found in, uh, in limestone but that just hasn't happened for the past hundred million years or so so we're, it's pretty much of a guess as to what these sharks look like but we find that uh, lemon sharks for instance and bull sharks they existed 10 million years ago and that's a long time and uh, they apparently did not change much in all that time and certainly the teeth didn't change much in that time but um, then the students uh, grad gradually began using my collection and and the researchers and I began supplying them with specimens and so I got a reputation for for uh, helping them out. So it's quite a leap to go from being interested in sharks to becoming among the world's foremost expert in shark paleontology. You know, how did you gain that reputation? <laughs> well, I I think it's because uh, of the way I collected. Uh, I didn't just collect uh, unusual teeth. I collected. I kept data on where they were collected. And then I began getting teeth from other places in the world and also associated sets of teeth. Now, associated sets of teeth are extremely rare. They're, they're sets of teeth that came from one shark that died uh, maybe uh, 50 million years ago, 100 million years ago, and they are extremely rare. There's not very many in this country. Uh, at one time, I had 51 associated sets of teeth um, many of those now I have donated to the Florida Museum of Natural History. And an associated set of teeth will tell you so much more about the, the shark and his relatives, uh, who he's related to, who he evolved from, and, and what happened uh, after he disappeared. What kind of opportunities has this adventure created for you? Well, uh, going back into to the zoo uh, business, uh, my wife and I were able to travel to East Africa three times, and uh, that was a very rewarding experience. Uh, we got a lot of photographs, met a lot of interesting people. Uh, with the shark thing, uh, I've met a lot of interesting people uh, through the TV shows, but also we went to Australia uh, back in 1981 and drove clear across Australia along the south coast uh, talking to fishermen and uh, also getting a few white shark jaws that I could bring back home and prepare. You had mentioned the museum, you know, that you have built to house your collection. Uh, it's a private museum, of course. Um, we'll be putting some photos up on our Instagram account, which is at Made in Gainesville. Would you con what would you consider to be the most impressive items in your collection? Oh, the impressive items are things uh, that for the most part I've already donated to the museum but they have allowed me to retain them here so that the graduate students and school kids when they come in here can see them. Uh, the one is uh, as a uh, type of white shark that was found in Peru and uh, on my first trip down to Peru we went uh, drove from Lima, Peru south about nine hours uh, along the coastal desert to a little town called Sakako. And um, there was a fellow there who was, uh, was a European descent, but he's married to an Indian. And, of course, most all those residents down there are Indians, Peruvian Indians. And um, 
he had collected for a French paleontologist, so he knew how to collect specimens. And we went down to visit him, and he had just found this uh, specimen of this white shark uh, out on the desert near his house. And he uh, had tried, uh, found a trail of vertebrae leading into a pile of dirt, and he started uh, scooping the dirt off the top and found all these teeth arranged uh, in place and realized what it was. And he dug underneath it, poured concrete under it, uh, hooked it up to his trailer, tractor rather, and uh, drug it across the Pan American Highway to his ranch. And I got there just a few days after he'd found it, and he was still trying to clean the thing up. And I told him, no, no, wait, wait, I'll take it, I'll buy it from you just the way it is. And so I did, and we shipped it back in a 55-gallon drum. But uh, it's a fantastic specimen, 222 teeth, uh, and uh, as complete as can be. And uh, a lot of the cartilage is there, and about half the vertebrae are there. So it's a good specimen for scientific study. I've been able to get uh, five associated sets of megalodon teeth, and of course megalodon was the, the big shark, the 60-footer the that uh, went around and gobbled up people and boats and everything. Well, of course he didn't because he lived well before that, but uh, there's a, been a lot written about me uh, megalodon, both uh, fiction and fact, but they are an impressive shark and they have huge teeth uh, teeth that can go over seven inches uh, in height, and that's uh, an enormous shark. And I've been able to collect five different uh, associate sets of megalodon teeth through my contacts throughout the world. Uh, a couple from Chile, uh, collected one down in the phosphate mines in central Florida. Uh, we got uh, one from Morocco and uh, one from North Carolina. And um, these are really scientifically extremely valuable specimens. Is it possible that there's a super shark like the megalodon that's living today that we just haven't seen yet? No, uh, absolutely not. Although a lot of people would like to think that, and a lot of people have written stories about uh, massive sharks uh, still in existence today. Uh, no, that just wouldn't happen. We would find some evidence of it. We would find... Uh, a whale carcass washed up with a huge bite mark out of it. Uh, we would probably find teeth in the deep dredges that they do. But uh, no, there's no possibility that the megalodon or any other big tooth shark like that exists today. The largest species of shark that exists today, of course, is a whale shark. And uh, they've been measured up to 47 feet in length. But they have little tiny teeth. Um, I have a jaw from one here. It's got 5,000 teeth in it. They're tiny little things. And they serve the shark by filtering out the plankton in the water. And uh, so they are a plankton-feeding shark. It seems odd that the biggest shark in the ocean would feed on some of the smallest things in the ocean. I guess that makes it a little less scary, doesn't it? <laughs> so you are a, you know amateur shark expert, but very well-respected amateur shark expert. What advice do you have for somebody that wants to become a world-renowned expert in something, and it could be anything, not necessarily you know, shark-related, uh, what is your advice for somebody to become a respected expert like that without you know, having a PhD or going through that formal training? Well, I, I'd say you just have to work at it uh, and work at it hard. Um, 
if if you're going to get into research, um, I would caution you that uh, you're not going to get rich <laughs> working in research. Uh, they're notoriously low-paying jobs, and I think a lot of people uh, see researchers, for instance, in Africa looking at the animals on the savannas. Uh, well, that's only a tiny part of research. The rest of the research is working in the lab, writing down figures and working equations, and it gets pretty boring after a while. And, of course, you can just barely make a living doing that kind of work. So uh, I would give that some thought before you get into uh, research. But as a hobby, uh, it's just like um, oh, playing the piano, for instance. I enjoy playing the piano, and it's a break for me if I'm uh, looking at shark teeth for a couple hours and it gets kind of intense and I just quit and I go play the piano. I'm in a different world and uh, it's relaxing. So uh, whatever hobby you choose or whatever vocation you choose, it should be something that you get pleasure from. Well, Dr. Hubble, this has all been very interesting. I really appreciate your time and thank you for coming on the show. It's been my pleasure. 